Welcome back to a very special episode of Real Ballers Read. We have my favorite guest yet, my sister, Vera Grace Minifi. Our sister. You know, oh, yeah, our sister. <laughs> and she is extraordinarily talented, smart, beautiful, incredible, athletic, great writer, great acting talent, great uh, musical talents. I could go this on. Could go on. <laughs> Easily the coolest yes. of the three of us. And we are so grateful to have you on today, Grace. Welcome onto the podcast. Thanks, bros. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this is your first podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it's right. My first podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, we love to start by talking to you about your journey as a reader and writer. Hmm. Well, to be honest, um, I think that I fell in love with movies first, mm. um, wow. watching them with, yeah. no, I mean, just to be real, like watching them with daddy often and yeah. getting to have a relationship with him through movies. And I was just watching them constantly in middle school. Um, and they felt like a way for me to like transport into a world and think about another person's life um, and reflect on that. And so I think that when I started to come back to reading in high school um, through assignments and classes, at first, I think I was a little intimidated because I felt like because I was so used to watching movies, I it made me like a slow reader. Mm. And so I think that reading kind of felt like something I was at odds with for a, like a minute while first starting because I felt like I didn't have enough practice with reading. Um, but I think when I finally started coming back to poetry and thinking about and having thoughts of my own of what I would want to write, uh, I immediately came back to Maya Angelou. And that was the first book that mommy and daddy gave me. And it was like this picture book of her poems. And it's funny now because I think my writing style is very similar to hers in terms of the the piece mm. and like the calmness in her writing. Wow. I didn't know. Do you remember which book that was specifically? Um, it was like a children's collection of of her poems. Oh, and it's it's yeah. I wish I could remember the illustrator, but it was yeah. a really cool like uh brush stroke kind of like watercolor paintings. That is so far. Do you do you still have it? Yeah, I still have it, but I think it's at home. Wow. Yeah. Thinking of, about your love of films first though, I remember you had a project in school where you had to create a movie soundtrack to a book oh yeah like, yeah wow how did you remember that because that, like <laughs> that was like seventh grade um i actually did it to fahrenheit 451 right wow. um Man. we were assigned like a list of books to choose from um yeah that i don't remember all the songs that i chose but I was having a lot of fun choosing like instrumental music mm -hmm. um, and finding like creating like a score rather than like mm -hmm. songs that would have lyrics that would play because I was imagining it more as a movie. And so mm -hmm. creating background music for a scene that was happening. Um, and I had a lot of fun finding music for that. Um, and it's funny, too, because now that uh, 
I'm more uh, familiar with reading and, and also like movie watching. Uh, like my favorite movie, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, actually doesn't have a soundtrack. It doesn't really? have a score. Wait, yeah. there's no music in there's, the there's, Well, the, what's so cool about it, it's like it really is like my favorite movie ever because of this. Yeah. Where like I love movie scores and always have. And like I have a whole playlist of like 300 songs of just movie scores because they're very peaceful for me to listen to while studying. Mm -hmm. And like, they feel familiar and remind me of scenes from the movie that calm me down. Mm -hmm. And so when I watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I was like looking up like the soundtrack, but like couldn't really find one because, and then I realized there wasn't a score for the movie. All the music that plays, it happens in live time. So like, unless the characters are hearing music oh, or listening nice. to music, you're not going to hear it. So like oh, all of the sounds easy. were, yeah, it was so cool. So like when, when like they're near the water, like all you hear is the ocean, but then like the ending scene, they're in like a, uh, like a symphony orchestra performance. And like, that's like one of the only times that there's music because the characters are listening to it. And then there's another scene where there's like a group of women singing, and then that's when you hear like music, but there's no score for a movie. That's that's different. Yeah, I still haven't seen. I haven't seen it either. Yeah. Actually, sorry to be talking about movies. I know. Oh, no, it's, it's a great starting point. Uh, love that you you know wanted to be real in that way, um, because yeah, I mean movies are like huge for all of us, and I think. Like they do a great job of like telling stories in interesting ways. Um, I I also love the scores. I didn't know that you had so much of a, a love for them, but like, what are your favorite like movie scores? Um, one that definitely comes to mind is Finding Nemo. Oh yeah, Finding Nemo. That's, um, that's there's a some, jerker, right? you know, there's some really pretty songs. Uh, I'm pretty sure the composer is Thomas Newman. Yeah, and Michael Giacchino is another main composer for Pixar movies. Um, pretty sure he did. Incredibles and Ratatouille. But mm. yeah, Finding Nemo is really good. Um, I really like the Silver Linings Playbook soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Um, the score is pretty good, too. Oh, my God. The Revenant score. Oh, really good. Was, yeah, that one's really good. Sounds like two notes really, the whole time. Yeah, it's just like... Mm, <laughs> it's just like <laughs> and it's like really long pauses. It's really funny, yeah. <laughs> you love that, bro. That's one of the great... That's one of the chilliest scores. Oh, <laughs> also, yeah. You'll forget that there's music out there in the background. Yeah. It's just kind of crazy. We're talking about, you know, movies, music, and mm. books around... Like, Angelo. Yeah, deep, deep way. And I think you see them all as very important. And I'm, I'm mm. kind of curious as to more of that connection or how you view art in general you know wow yeah i think i don't know i feel like i've definitely become someone who the word art doesn't really feel like it totally encompasses what it means but like i also find i also find that um using that word feels like a like the closest i can get to how i see myself like creatively in terms of like how I can express myself through music or acting or writing. Um, and I've recently really come to love dance and it's like my minor in college now. And I could really see, and it's interesting to like talk about movies, books and music, because I think dance is actually something 
even more accessible than a lot of those because it is mm. coming directly from a body and person. Yeah. Um, and so I think like movements that choreographers and dancers create are very natural that I think they can be so like rudimentary and so like a part of a core person or someone's core that I think that's what makes it most intimidating to people when they watch it, where they're like, mm -hmm. wow, like, or when people are like, oh, I can't dance or, oh, I'm not into dance. Mm -hmm. But I find that people say the same thing about poetry and they're like, oh, I'm not into poetry. I don't know how to read it. And I don't understand it. But I think it's actually because it's like more of a natural expression. Saying, you know, there, yeah, there is like a certain intimacy and like vulnerability mm -hmm. of like, yeah. like even, even with writing in general, right? Um, you know, there is kind of like a separation from it. But when you're dancing, like people mm -hmm. are watching your body, like and <laughs> your spirit and all the emotionality, like they're watching you in your entirety and all you're working with is mm -hmm. your is your body. You know, that that there's definitely like a intimacy and vulnerability there that's different. Mm -hmm. um, and so like you're just saying that you are minoring in dance, but mm -hmm. uh, when did you start like loving dancing? Wow. That's a really good question. I, I did dancing in high school, but it felt more like something I would do for performances mm. um, or like only bring out when it's like in rehearsal. Um, but when I, uh, I think it was my spring of my first year in college, I took a dance class totally by accident, actually. It was taught in combination with a poetry class. And so it was a poetry of place class talking about like nature writing and then it was a site-specific dance class about dancing in the environment and in specific places mm -hmm. and once I started taking that class I just learned a lot more about what I envisioned in performance and I think it was also at a time where I was having conflicts about acting and performing in stage places and mm -hmm. feeling like I was doing something or performing art just for other people. And I think dance allowed me to bring it back into my body and feel more like I was doing and performing for myself and to to figure out a higher idea and concept that I was thinking of rather than wow. performing for someone else. Um, and so, yeah, I found it in college and have now just continued and have gotten really into West African dance practices through one of my professors, Miss Elise Campbell, and I'll be traveling. That's the person who's mm. um, running and facilitating the trip to Gambia and Senegal. Mm. And so we'll be really integrating into the history and practices of dance in West Africa. Yeah. Okay, there's, there's so many places that we could go right now, um, <laughs> but I really do want to get another cute and adorable story of Vera Grace, um, <laughs> which is that you taught yourself how to write. Um, they're not like like write cursive specifically. Like you were very intentional, I remember about <laughs> you don't remember this, Grace? No. Really? I remember you being in your room like by yourself, quiet, just writing like yeah. V Whoa. E R A over and over and over again to get your to get your handwriting as like pretty and like nice as possible mm -hmm. um if you don't remember it i guess it's hard for you to elaborate no on but this, like you mean you mean handwriting or yes just handwriting like, like, like no okay. like your okay. your handwriting your yeah, scripts, my handwriting has like, had evolutions you're right so i i think like that was just standing out to me right now because of what you're saying about 
how art doesn't even encompass the full meaning of the word. And you, more than anybody that I know, like embody art and just all of the expressions of it. Um, and I just wanted to get writing on the table as another one of those ways where you've always taken a serious attention to detail and to the craft. Mm. Um, because even back then, when you were teaching yourself how to write in a very specific, unique and beautiful way, you didn't even know that you were going to be a songwriter, right? Mm. Like later down the line, um, you didn't know how mm. that was going to turn into other forms of like creation, but it was there, right? Mm. So um, yeah, do, do you have anything to like, say just about your story with like <laughs> writing and yeah mm. i think something that stands out actually is my experience in time at deerfield mm. uh in high school and like we all went to the same high school but um after after miles graduated um i had the next like three years there and i think that a lot of i can really remember clearly each year of high school, like the English class that I was in mm -hmm. and the writing assignments that we had and like in all of them being the only black kid in the class. And actually since freshman year, it was freshman year through senior year and I was the only black in my English class. And I think it made me feel even more motivated to find my voice outside of how other kids were reading it because like we would always have mm -hmm. to workshop or share the assignment so that you know the teacher could so it'd be better for the teacher to read and everything um but I would be writing stuff that was really coming from the heart and was really coming from how I felt in that space and I think that was like a part of the attention to detail where like I would be writing things and I, I even had a class this past spring in college where I based my entire final essay about my experience as the only black student in that class mm -hmm. and how I felt that the dance teacher's approach to studying somatics and the body and connection to the environment was incredibly whitewashed and was incredibly focused on white interpretation with the environment and mm -hmm. of the body. And it was just like a really overwhelming class where, you know, there was a class where um, we were told to touch like each other's like heads as part of the activity Interesting. Okay. it was super avant-garde super <laughs> weird typical overland earthy crunchy vibe um but i was paired with a professor and she actually like touched my hair and like i had my afro out and it really bothered me that like she didn't no. think to ask and it was this weird like assumption of like oh in this class you will be treated as though you have white hair because this is a part of like unveiling race or something like weird yeah. where i yeah. felt like she wasn't willing to engage with me because she was trying to prove a point about oh we're equal but i'm like actually no i don't want you to touch my hair though like like you should have asked me about did you do i mean i wrote a seven to eight page essay about <laughs> and i was like this class has been taught in an anti-black way and i can't remember the name of it but it was, it was so it really made me happy like thinking about it where i was like wow this could be a whole like I'm thinking about pursuing it with graduate school where it's like a somatic study of blackness and just mm. being in a, like a black body and perceiving the environment and different kind of approach to living in relationship to the environment that's not based around a kind of white model where it just it was so obvious. Like we only had one book for the whole class written by a white woman and 
was just very exoticizing nature and wilderness through a weird, oh, I respect indigenous people, but I also like, I'm not indigenous, so I'm not going to talk about that and don't care. And it was just like a really strange class, but it reminded me of times in high school where like, I, I think I started writing through armor and like the, the quote from Audre Lorde of like, poetry is not a luxury. And that whole essay was about how she was saying poetry doesn't come from privileged people who have free time to write. It's not about privilege. It's not about having the privilege to write. It's about survival and not allowing other people to write your story for you. And oftentimes in the classes that I've been in, it feels like I'm asked to hold my tongue on discomfort or mistreatment. And because of how it makes other kids feel or how it makes the white kids feel specifically. And so I think through writing, I found a way to really get under that and why people were expecting that of me. And I remember my sophomore year in high school, I had written um, a poem based on Langston Hughes' poem, I Too. Mm -hmm. And it was a really important poem for me. And I read it aloud. And... You remember like the declamations in high school? Yeah. So I read it for the declamation finals and I ended up crying like during mm -hmm. my reading of it. And like my like old roommate came up to me like after and was like, wow, that was so believable. And was like, good job on like crying and like making that tear come out. And it was just really the icing on the cake where I was like, you're really not understanding that this is like a real experience for me. I had read a line about like walking down a street and feeling like there was an invisible bullet aimed at my back where I was just like, you know, this is around the time of like um, after Trayvon Martin and after Eric Garner and a year later, someone who I'll never forget, Nia Wilson, she had been murdered in Northern California by just a white random white guy on the street mm -hmm. or actually on the train station. And like, he also assaulted her sister. And, like, she was 19, and I was in... It was my junior year. And to think, like, how close we were in age, like, that shit was real for me. Mm -hmm. And, like... But I would be around kids who would be talking about dresses or the latest clothes or latest fads. And so, yeah, I think I'm just, like, speaking in a very kind of cyclical way of trying to describe that, like, writing for me... Mm -hmm was just a way to survive the, the experiences that I was in and mm -hmm. the environment I was in and a way to create the world I envisioned for myself and not the one that students or teachers were expecting of me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's so real. I mean, first of all, like, uh, you reminded me that I need to I need to get your entire Google Drive portfolio, <laughs> everything you've ever written, and just like read all of it. Because, you know, because no, uh, I, I have somewhere, somewhere in this vicinity, I have uh, your your flow and crash oh. meditation from your senior year about your relationship to water. And not only was I like choking up and crying when I read that, but I helped, I, I've had it in my backpack for literally like years oh. printed out. Um, constantly like rereading it, thinking about it. It's, it's, it is entirely inspired, like, you know, my own reflection and uh, writing on like my relationship to water and the environment. Mm. Um, 
and that's only like one thing of all the things <laughs> you've ever like written and really like thought about um so yeah I, thanks for reminding me about that but i did have another question for you around um how you've talked about my angelou you've talked about um audrey lord just now there yeah. are some other people that i'd love to bring into this conversation um by asking you like who do you feel like you belong to right like in terms of your wow. community um mm -hmm. given that so much of your experience as you're describing as being around folks that you like don't necessarily mm -hmm. jive with but you know are in the process of creating for yourself but who do you think has already been there like inspiring you informing like who you see yourself as and what you believe in and people that i've met oh yeah people you've met or read or anything mm. interacted with wow that is a really good and big question i think i think someone who i'm who's always in the front of my mind um is actually grandma vera mm -hmm. and i really don't think i've felt a connection to her until like after graduating high school and like mm -hmm. the pandemic and i think that was when the interview with her was first found yeah. and when i was first able to watch it and felt like she was a presence in my life mm -hmm. and like watching that video i was like wow like i've always felt you here mm -hmm. and yeah it's just like crazy to think how long it took me to feel that she was there but i really like when when our mom or dad will be like you are protected i like i really think it's because of her mm. i i just really feel like there's like something connecting me to her mm. through like through our name and and also like hearing the way that mommy types her and the things we have in common are things that remind <laughs> remind uh remind her of me and yeah uh, i remember when i was presenting on my oh so funny like i was gonna say presenting my research it's so yeah. funny that we're talking about so much right but um when i was presenting my research one time uh i have her interview as part of my presentation and mm -hmm. i oh, i had a technical difficulty and so i was like you know trying to press play and at that point the audience was really engaged and was really excited to hear about this interview and they're like no take your time take your time and it was a conference for HBCUs, and so it was a really welcoming space. And and I heard someone from the audience be like, "Wow, you look just like her." And like wow. hearing that, it was just it just felt so grounding. And yeah, kind of thinking back to the thing I said of writing being my armor, where like now I I really genuinely feel like she's kind of my armor now, where it's like she really is protecting me and i feel like by connecting my purpose and plan in life to what what i feel coming from her mm -hmm. like i feel like i have places and people and things i need to do in my life that anytime i'm worried something will happen like i know that what will need to happen will because of her mm -hmm. but yeah i just i really feel connected to her it's really fascinating and I just find a lot of strength in in her life and like what she's passed down to us and to mommy and knowing that everything that like our parents have given to us like came from her and her husband and for for daddy's side like his parents mm -hmm. and being 
connected to a line of ancestry that I can tangibly see and like feel is really important to me. So that's definitely someone I like always has to pay homage to and is part of my process of being intentional in relation and remembering that we exist because of the people before us. Yeah, that's uh, that's super deep. I mean, for context, would you mind? Uh, yeah, I will. Like, well, no, just about like, because, you know, I remember like when we were like naming you, like I remember being in the hospital, like <laughs> in Chicago, like you Chicago <laughs> hospital, thinking about names. We were like, oh, can we name her Eeyore? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Pig, 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 but yeah, could you just share more context on uh, just uh, your alignment with our grandma for your name, mm-hmm. um, your own relationship to your name, and uh, and as well the video, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what was it about the yeah. video? Because then Thank once we you. once we lay out the context, then Thank we can start you. talking yeah. about your research more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, our grandmother from mom's side, mm-hmm. uh, her name is Vera Ellis, and Ellis was her. Um, married name actually Uh, and so her uh, maiden name was Clayton and um, she passed away before I was born Mm -hmm. um, but was still alive how'd you met her yeah so I had like I had met her and been around her but I don't remember I don't I I have no memories of her and then um, our mom was actually just telling us uh, a few months ago at our retreat that um she had told like grandma Vera had told our mom that she was feeling like she was going to pass away soon mm. and uh our mom was like i'm pregnant with miles mm. and then grandma Vera was like all right i'll wait and then literally like and literally lived to to hold yeah. miles um and then passed away soon after yeah. um but i don't i have no recollection of yeah. interacting with her yeah that's that's yeah. so true of like yeah. the with memory mm-hmm. memory is really fascinating um where you can be around someone but not remember. Um, I think that's what's fascinating about my relationship to her because Mm -hmm. she passed away before I was born. So I Mm -hmm. never met her in like person or physically. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that by sharing her name, Mm -hmm. I felt like she was living on through me. And I think that was, it's always interesting to me to think back to how our mom couldn't say my name for like the first few years of my life. She would always call me Grace, not Vera. Yeah. And because that was what she called her mom. And so having that memory for her was very heavy for her. And it's definitely something I've seen grow in our relationship. Um, I think because I, I just I can't imagine that it's not something or like that it's something that she doesn't think about. Um but I think that it that our name has like taken a new meaning for her because I have it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we even have other little cousins who are named Viren and like yeah. <laughs> um, and it's really sweet. And so yeah. seeing the way that like ever like everyone in our family like says such amazing things about Grandma Vera in mm-hmm. terms of the role that that she played in their lives. Um, and so, yeah, like feeling like I had that piece of a literal legacy through my name was something I just kind of learned to grow into as I got older. 
and then having the interview um, be finally found. And it was part of the Washington University in St. Louis, uh, like one of their research archival programs about uh, Great Migration. Yeah. And so they were interviewing uh, Grandma Vera to learn about her experience growing up on a sharecropping farm and her um, relationship with her dad and her mom. And her dad, actually, Cleveland Clayton, he was one of the um, members of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, um, which was the first multiracial workers union, for the most part, in the South, um, based on tenant farmers and sharecroppers who were asking for better conditions and wages for their work. Um, I'm trying to think what else was in the question. Oh, no, that, that's all great. Yeah, context. Yeah, I was going to say that, um, that, uh, you know, you mentioned, um, presenting your research at the HBCU conference, right? You were invited to go there. <laughs> Basically they paid your way, right? They did. Cause you had way. already presented it. Yes. And then they were like, Oh, come do it for us. Yeah. I had yeah, to, exactly. I had so, to like, I had to right, apply so what's my the, abstract. Yeah. yeah. But then, so what's the, like, what's the story with your research? And then mm -hmm. that'll, that'll help fold in the, the video specifically. Yeah. Um, so I started working at an urban farm in Cleveland, Ohio called Vell's Purple Oasis. And it was founded by a community elder there, Vell Scott. And I kind of just started working as an intern there developing curriculum and helping to you know like write write up pdfs or or different pamphlets and uh kind of outreach materials and from there something really sparked in me around food security and memories of growing up in dayton and just being surrounded by liquor stores gas stations and dollar trees mm. and like and then the one Kroger grocery store that was nearby, like, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't go there because, like, things would be happening there that, like, were not safe. Things are escalating. Yeah, right? like, you know, yes. here on the news, there's, like, a stabbing. And, like, this is, like, the one grocery store within, like, at least two or three miles. Um, and so those memories just really started rushing back when I started working at Vell's and seeing the work that she was doing and and leading to create a way of maintaining some sense of food security for people in the community and providing fresh produce and an alternative way of eating instead of like fast food or or gas station convenience food um and so after working there i just really felt this connection between farming and creating food security for black communities um, across the across the country. And and I think the idea started from there. And so I wanted to kind of create a way to interview Miss Vell on her experience and like relationship with farming to gain an understanding of how this can be spread throughout other urban centers in the country and so it went through a lot of processes of 
uh, applying to get approved by the college to conduct interviews. Um, and I got approved in May of this year and was able to conduct three interviews over the summer. And with, with all Black women elders who are from the area of Northeast Ohio, who are all engaged in farming and gardening. And from my idea that sprouted from working at Vells, like it's really grown into a, a, like a way to study and, and reflect and analyze what Black farming and agriculture has looked like and what it can look like. Um, and yeah, something it reminds me of something, Jen, that we've talked about before of farmers being carriers of time where they have this deep and spiritual relationship with land and time that is based upon like harvest and planting and um knowing when the soil needs like time to rest mm -hmm. that i think it could really unlock a way towards not only achieving food security and a way to like provide food for people who need a steady source of food but also as a way to create a path for liberation from high-key white supremacist paradigms of time and structures and principles that are based upon extraction, exploitation, exhaustion, and overworking mm -hmm. that I think farming, and in particular the practices that came from West African indigenous traditions and that were then shared and blended with Native American people upon like during the period of enslavement, those traditions I think are much closer to what liberation could look like for black people. Every answer is just I know. Moment <laughs> <And, of silence>. uh, <laughs> dang. Um so tell tell me a little more about how you approached that topic because you know based on how you're talking about it and how i know you just operate as a person it doesn't seem to mesh well with my experiences of mm. a academia or um mm. you know and i think old oberlin's great is probably a lot different than stanford in, in a lot of ways but how did you change your approach to the research given mm. the subject matter that was, yeah, that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. I also just want to say I appreciate this space to talk about this with y'all. Like, yeah. this is helping me think through a lot of experience I've experiences that I've had. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of, like, how I got here and why I am this way and who, like, why I am who I am. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just wanted to, like, show gratitude. You're welcome. These are, like, <laughs> these are... But yeah, like to that question of how I approach my research mm. and then my relationship with academia. Um, 
it actually, I think it ties back to a question you had earlier of the ways that I connect to art and like express myself in all these different mediums where the part that I wanted or something I meant to say in answering that was that I feel that all of the different expressions and mediums that I use and want to learn are all a part of me and feel like they already exist in like how I show up in the world. Mm. So they feel accessible once I open up to them. And so I think that with <laughs> with my approach to research, mm. I'm constantly looking for ways to like pull back to the, okay, let me settle in and think about mm. what's my instinctual way of approaching this. Mm. And I think that I was really in conflict with that at first because, right, like I immediately wanted to do the interview right. and and honor honor the work that's being done by people like Bill Scott in Cleveland and was so excited to analyze it. But then, you know, I have to do the paperwork and application mm -hmm. for the Institutional Review Board to approve for me to do research with people. And that was like really that really challenged the way that I saw research and the way that I saw curiosity and exploration where I was like, wow, here's this thing I want to explore, but there's something that's making it, there's something that historically has been ruined by academic research because of, because of like historical ways that minority groups were taken advantage of through academic modes of research. And so that's why the IRB, the Institutional Review Board is there. But all of a sudden I was like, but that, I you know I was feeling like that doesn't apply to me though, because this is my community. These are the people who I grew up with and know. And so I felt like, I felt like I really had to reflect on my intentions for my project and I for and I still go back and forth about it with research in general through academic institutions where it's like is there a way to do this without it becoming like extractive or without it becoming not reciprocal because of oh I need to like write a paper for the Mellon Foundation by the end of this semester like oh I need to meet these deadlines and now it's forcing me to rush a community partnership. Mm. And that's when having a mentor like um, my professor, Jay Fiskio, who works in the environmental studies department and early on in my project, she was my first mentor. And she said, like, I was saying how I was like, oh, I need to make sure I have all of this ready for the application and have to make sure that I have this partnership, right? This, and it just was so stressed about creating the right community partners that she was able to really ground me and was just like, this project is on its own timeline and it's not confined to your four years at Oberlin. Mm. And you like don't have to approach it in a way where it's like, oh, when I graduate, it's done. And or like, oh, when I graduate, I don't have to be thinking about this anymore. 
where like my approach to the research is very like bringing it into how can I apply this and continue to apply this? How can this be sustainable after I graduate? How can I maintain these relationships and be consistently reminding and making my community partners feel that they're valued in my project? And I think a lot of it has to do with working from a place of envisioning the world that I want to see rather than constructing my project around the trauma or the the harm that was caused in history. Um, and to shout out another author in this moment who's helping me to articulate this, um, I listened to an interview with Adrienne Marie Brown where she was saying that she pref- like when she's organizing and when she's in organizing spaces, she feels that it's most important to organize around the dreams and visions that the group has for the future, not the not the reactionary or like the like hatred for how the present is. Mm-hmm. And so like not connecting yourself to someone based on the things that you hate about the world but connecting with someone based on what you want for the world and like organizing based off of a futurist perspective. And so through my research, I really am trying to center a way of not connecting with Black people or Black farmers based off of sharecropping or enslavement, right? Mm -hmm. Or the history and the trauma that that holds, but connecting based off of the practices that have been passed down and the power of community organizing that has been laid by ancestors like Fannie Lou Hamer and people like Leah Penniman working now and analyzing and like really studying the the vision and future that they hold. And so I think it's really about like a shifting and recentering, um, but more so like a returning to of mm-hmm. like, what it means to be black and also be in relationship with the environment. Mm. But yeah, I think with my relationship to research and academia, it's really a struggle. Mm. And I still kind of sometimes feel that it's not the, it's not the just way of pursuing change, in my opinion, where I think a lot about like with with the approach of research-based art or artistic expressions and uh, pieces that are based in research, but end in community-based art pieces. I find those to be much more reflective of what community reciprocity looks like because it's not based around academic timelines or getting tenure or getting published and I think that can sometimes take the forefront with academic research where I'm constantly having to remind myself and ground myself because of the environment that academia creates yeah 
Um, Thank you for that question, though. No, that was really helpful to reflect on. So, you know, you just you just vocalized something that I had been noticing this whole time that you've been talking around the importance of returning and seeing mm. how much of the future for us, for our collective well-being as Black people is in the past um, or mm. can be the seeds of it can be found and uh, the practices can be found through the past. And because end of the day, right, like all of those, all of those things that we inherit from our ancestors are very much present right now, right? right. Like there, it's not like they're just gone. They're very much in our bodies. They're in our relationships. Uh, also sometimes in books, but even more of it is just out kind of like out there for all of us. Um, but you were just saying the importance of returning. And mm -hmm. I want, I'm curious to hear more about like where uh, your study abroad to mm -hmm. like Southern and West Africa fits into that, right? Because uh, you just, you're, you're literally fresh off of <laughs> a study abroad to Namibia yeah. and South Africa. And mm -hmm. you did do some other traveling as well, wow. but you're fresh off of that. So could you just share more about where your relationship to the continent fits into that idea of return and agricultural black agricultural practices um just just before you even left right so so then we can do like a kind of before during and after of that experience before before you went to on your study abroad like what were you bringing with you on that trip um, that was a really full circle yeah Oh, yeah, you didn't, got yeah. the wind knocked out of me. Yeah, I know. I um, you didn't know how we were gonna bring it in. Wow! But you let us right there. <laughs> <laughs> you let us do it. You set the you played yourself. Wow! <laughs> uh, wow! Returning to is definitely an interesting concept to bring up mm -hmm. in the in that question mm -hmm. and. It really, it really was uh, like stark before and after with with going to Namibia for to live there for the next three months, three and a half months, and then coming back now to the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's something I'm still piecing together day by day. I got here Saturday, and <laughs> that's right. That was like days ago, <laughs> and so. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? And so, <laughs> I know, because what is time, yo? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, it's a really complicated question. And it's something I really have been, I feel like in a lot of my research and relationship with academia, it's very focused on the individual and it's very focused on what do I think about this, what do I have to say about this? What's my opinion on this? Mm -hmm. And I think that something I really learned from being abroad as well is that this conversation and the answer to this question and my process of the returning to for African-Americans and people who are living in Africa where it has to be a collective and community response and and vision for for what that means where i just i'm still thinking through i think that i did have 
that feeling of, oh, I'm returning to where my family came from Mm -hmm. when I was going there. Mm -hmm. And yet when I got there, um, there's definitely more of a wall up between, oh, you're American, so you're not black or like you're not like us. And I think that really had to make me face like what my expectation was mm-hmm. like what does returning to mean and i think it was definitely a growing and telling experience of like i don't know just kind of that as connected as i feel to the continent and to african cultures that's not my home and returning like the concept of returning there I think is very in some ways distant where I think that for people who live there now you know like they very much so disagree with that idea for African Americans they're like no you're not from here you're not like us and so yeah that's just kind of how I'm processing it so far Mm -hmm. from being away and returning um but it gets even more complicated in the states where even i've been reflecting a lot about the culture and relationship between african-american students and african students at oberlin Mm. where there's a lot of tension there that's unaddressed and that goes ignored um and i think that it has to do with being at a pwi where it feels like we have to agree on everything and have to be by each other's side on things. But then a lot of the African students who speak up and who are part of like boards and who are part of like Black Student Union, like often critique African-American students for taking up a lot of space in terms of what the Black community receives from Oberlin and really like feeling like African-American students needs and wants are prioritized over theirs mm. and it's like really fascinating to have that know that that's happening there and to want to be doing more to help with closing that gap and not making it feel that african-american students are taking up the most space in the conversation about what blackness is or what is best for the Black community in the U.S. And I think it was fascinating upon arriving in Namibia where it felt more like, uh, it just felt like I couldn't be, like it felt like there was a harder time. I felt like I had a harder time being able to find the connections between African-Americans and people in Namibia and South Africa because they're just so different. And I actually found a lot more connection historically and spiritually of connection with land between Namibians and um, the various ethnic groups that are in Namibia and the experiences of indigenous peoples upon colonial settlement mm-hmm. in like America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's much more connection there. Yeah, definitely. Compared definitely. to the history of African-Americans and African diaspora culture that was created through the violence of enslavement. And so 
it was really fascinating to be able to live in Namibia and start to, I really wanted to go to learn about, I, I really was interested in learning about agriculture. And I think as much as it felt like, yes, there was this assumption or expectation of I'm returning to somewhere that I was supposed to be, that kind of feeling. There was also, I definitely was aware and was able to acknowledge from the beginning that it's not the same, like I don't have the same experience. Mm -hmm. And so I really was coming in just wanting to learn about the presence and history of agriculture mm -hmm. and farming and how that impacted culture. And it's it's so amazing like how much there is to like learn about for specifically Namibia. And it's a place that most Americans haven't heard of. Most people don't know. Every time I would like tell someone I was studying away, they'd usually be like, oh, in South Africa. And I'm like, no, it's actually a different country that like is no longer part of South Africa. Mm -hmm. And but it used to be. And so just all of these different things coming together through what I learned there. And with agriculture specifically, it was really fascinating because I still felt that connection with farming like it felt very similar to in the U.S. where like farmers everywhere are just very grounded and down-to-earth people where they aren't as bogged down or concerned with a lot of the other kind of noise in the world where like it just felt like they wanted to it just felt like there was a similar connection with this is how I want to treat others and this is how I want others to treat me and not as much being about class or race or even ethnic group. And I find that to be really similar with the farming community in the U.S. where it's very, it really is like more about um, how do you farm? Like how do you practice? What Like how do you relate to the land and and not as much about like your family background or like who you are it's just like the farming community is very non-judgmental yeah. and i found that to be the same from what i've read and heard about the farming community in namibia it's too small to not to not be you mean like oh, the country not judge i said in, in oh, as the yeah. oh yeah it was too small oh yeah i was about to say they definitely used to be judgmental oh yeah that's so, true yeah. so there's that's, yeah, that's a good point yeah there's a lot of interesting nuances to was it's really tricky was, was there ever a person in africa when when you were there though that received you as one of their own hmm. did anyone ever give you that feeling well, or say that it's it's tricky because it the the other layer to mm -hmm. land ownership and farming in Namibia is based on and very connected to colonial land theft from the original German settlers. Mm. And most of the farms located near the capital of Windhoek are white-owned. Um, and so most of the, like, I, I didn't really like visit those. And also like, I was kind of confined to like my program schedule. Mm. Um, but it's fascinating because, uh, there's 
a commercial farm system and then there's a communal farm system Mm -hmm. and both of those are very geographically based and they actually stem directly from apartheid reserve laws where during apartheid people within the various ethnic groups were assigned to certain land that they were allowed to live on and the same thing happened in south africa and in namibia though specifically it was there would be like a reserve base for people of the herero group there'd be a reserve for people of the nama group there'd be a reserve for people of damara there'd be a group for kavango region and ovambo people and there was even a group for one of the uh indigenous minorities which are the san people and basically they were it was very similar to what is now seen in the U.S. for reservations for Native American people, where they were forced to live in that specific area. And so now all of the communal farming land is based in those same reserves from apartheid for the most part. And there's been a process of um, land resettlement since independence in Namibia. Um, However, it's very tricky because the political elite and the political party, which has been the same for the last 32 years, they have been able to commandeer the process and have been able to create and like add in nepotism and a lot of corruption into who's allotted land. And so it's very tricky. Um, It's really, really tricky. And so I actually wasn't able to go to the northern region, which is where most of the communal farms are. And so that was something that was like really um, saddening about my trip where I really want to go back to be able to visit that region specifically um, because I think that the farms there have a very different relationship with land and especially like with food security specifically where Mm -hmm. with the communal farming, um, most of the farmers in those regions are subsistence farmers. And Mm -hmm. so they're growing to to feed their families and not to sell which Mm. is the main difference between the commercial and communal land um getting into a lot of semantics but um i will say though that to to answer your question of has someone really like let me in and Mm. and made me feel that way and made me feel welcome there was actually a person that we visited in south africa Mm. and she's uh based in cape town Mm. and her name is lucy campbell and she was a really amazing person to meet and I really like she was it's crazy because we met her like the first week that we were there um we were only in South Africa for two weeks and then I spent the rest of the three and a half months in Namibia and so even from that first week of getting to meet her I thought about her the rest of the semester because she was the first and one of the there was only one other person that we met in Namibia who was an openly queer woman mm. And Lucy Campbell was also just such a radical and revolutionary kind of person to be around and was constantly questioning and critiquing and picking at, like, why are these statues of white men here? Why are these buildings still named after colonizers? And was really able to to put a name to a face for what the legacy of apartheid looks like in South Africa. 
And she also is an openly lesbian woman. Mm -hmm. And she also happens to have a um, queer safe space garden that she's created in Cape Town with her partner. And yeah, she's super cool. And she's someone I really plan to uh, reach out to again so that Mm -hmm. I can... I wasn't able to visit her garden, but um, she immediately was like, you will always have a space there if you would like to. And was very welcoming for me. And we were able to like connect on queerness and and our identities in that way. And immediately it was like, you will always have a space at my garden. Mm. And that was like something really meaningful for me where like, uh, it was really important. It was a really important interaction for me to have at the beginning of the program. Um, but yeah, it's something that's also really tricky about my time in uh, Southern Africa where the way that queerness is like perceived and really shunned in a lot of areas, like made it feel much less like returning to anything because mm-hmm. to be there and feel like I would not be accepted based on my sexual orientation or feeling like I couldn't mm-hmm. express that openly mm-hmm. made it feel like I was not returning to a place that mm-hmm. I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really real. Um, and what's, I guess, kind of funny and also uh, in a funny and ridiculous kind of way is that you're about to be going back. Going back. <laughs> you're about to be going back. But you're going to be in a different place. So, yeah. Um, and you're for different reasons and for a different length of time. So, yeah, would you mind just sharing more of this next upcoming trip that you got to yeah. West Africa and like what you're looking forward to for this one? Yeah. Um, I also want to add to that, like, I feel like a much different person too. Oh, yeah. After my time mm-hmm. in Namibia. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think it's really made me feel, um, more comfortable and like open to nuance and the ways that and like contradiction and and um things that are hard to describe or that you can't quite describe fully where I think there was so much that I experienced during my time in Namibia that I will probably never be able to put words to mm-hmm. but know that I felt them while I was there and know that there's such a rich history and culture and just like such a strong presence of of really like joy in Namibia that could be really easy to take for granted when you learn so much about the colonial history there um and so I just feel like with the region of southern Africa and then with the greater and larger continent for Africa of Africa, where it's like there's so much there that like can't even be fully described. And like I was telling Miles of like, um, there's a uh sir, so I'll be traveling with Miss Celise Campbell, and she's the founder of the Japo Cultural Institute in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll also be traveling with her partner, Weedy Brima who's actually like a world-renowned, like Grammy-nominated djembe drum player. player. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's fine. crazy. Yeah, we got. I got to show you his album. It's so good. Wait, what was his name? Uh, Weedy Brima. Oh, okay. Weedy, yeah. yeah. He's very, like, one of the, like, sweetest guys. Mm-hmm. And um, he 
came to our West African dance class to to teach um, some patterns. And he said in one of our classes how you can't use like the English language to just like you can't describe African content concepts in English vernacular. And like just like the boundary of language yeah. where there was so much that I experienced while there. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even have the word like I literally don't have the word the English in the word. English <laughs> language to describe the amount of culture and and experiences and just like presence of of things that are there mm-hmm. where so much of it just like can't be described in English. And so I think I feel more open to experiencing them when I return and it it will be a different region. Um, and so I'm excited about that to experience some of the, because I think the hardest thing too about um, Namibia and South Africa was that because they were both settler colonies um, from the original colonizers, mm-hmm. that meant that white people and white Europeans were still living there yeah. and have now have an emotional connection to being there mm-hmm. that... Like I was on my flight to Johannesburg and was like, where am I going? Yeah, like it looked like it looked like yeah, a flight exactly. to London. Yeah, and I was like, well, like, am I on the right flight? Am I on the right yeah. plane? Yeah, exactly. And whereas, you know, West Africa is more extractive. So they right. never, they were never coming in to stay. They were never coming in there to live. Exactly. And so mm-hmm. I'm really curious to see how that might change the culture there now. Um, and so, yes, they are different regions. Um, and that's also something that I'm looking forward to and also centering in how I prepare for the trip and remembering that they're different places and have so such a wide variety of what to experience while I'm there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just remembering to go into the trip without an expectation or any assumptions for what I'm going to experience or feel so that I can be more open to what does happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited because we're going to be focusing more on the arts specifically, and it'll be a cultural immersion for the two weeks that we're there in Gambia and Senegal. And we fly into Senegal and then bus into Gambia and then bus back to Senegal. And we're going to be taking drum lesson classes and dancing classes. And we'll also be learning um, Wolof for some of the time that we're there and taking language classes. And so I'm really excited to get to travel with two amazing artists who have been there before and having people to like guide me while I'm there because it would look very much it would look very different if I weren't traveling with them and yeah. so I'm really excited for for the blessing that it is that I get to travel with them to see West Africa for the first time mm-hmm. yeah for sure and um you know a lot of our listeners aren't like in college or um you know necessarily on these interesting study abroad programs Mm. but you know a lot of people uh still consider or are thinking about um 
you know, traveling to West Africa or mm -hmm. to Egypt or, you know, South Africa or something just on their own or with programs like at Urban Intellectuals. Shout out to Freddie, a former podcast guest. Um, but what do you think is what what's worth it in going mm -hmm. to the continent at all for traveling in any capacity? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I mean, really just everything. Is, everything. It's, it's, yeah. it's all worth it. Mm. Like even the harder parts and the even challenges. Even the harder and... parts. Okay. Of Why? course, because Why? I mean, because you can't have the the good parts without the harder parts, mm. and like it's just so unforgettable to be able to experience. Like I said, the nuance of being there, where being in Namibia specifically, they have a, they still have a class of people who are referred to as colored or mixed. And so even though I have two black parents, I am lighter skinned. And so most people perceive me as being colored. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I was perceived as a woman. And so like I was constantly like having to navigate the patriarchy there and the the prevalence of of unwanted comments from men and navigating that and then on top of that I mentioned of like the feeling and like kind of judgment around queerness where mm -hmm. it just felt like I was constantly having to navigate what like how people in Namibia were perceiving me or having to navigate like what not to do in certain situations yeah. for sure right but like if I hadn't I know like I wouldn't trade any of that for having been there. And I think it really is something that for it to not be on someone's list for places to travel, it's just like, why don't you want to go there? Like, anti -black. It, yeah. yeah, it's just anti-black. It's just anti-black. And so it's like, just, just cheating yourself. <laughs> so I think, and I don't want to like be telling people like what to do, but I think that Ooh. if <laughs> I think, I think traveling to, anywhere in Africa is definitely something everyone should experience globally, mm -hmm. just globally, mm -hmm. because. Like, you mean like whether you're black or not? Whether you're black or not, whether you're in America or not. Yeah. Just globally, mm -hmm. everyone not living in Africa needs to go to Africa. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, just like globally, if you're not, really? you need yeah. to go. Yeah. Because everything that you use comes from there. Yeah, that's so like that's so uh, maybe it's main China, but so many, so many resources yeah. are taken from Africa, and we just assume that they come from the sky. And it's like, no, actually, yeah, they they come from like the center of the earth, right? Which no, I mean, is like positioned in Africa. So it's uh, yeah. No, ma the majority of the time that. Homo sapiens, human beings have ever been around. Majority of that time was in the continent, in the continent. you know, uh, oh. before people migrated elsewhere. Uh, but uh, you know, sir, I want to circle back to movies real quick because <laughs> you know one of the most popular and uh, influential representations of Africa in the Black American imagination is, of course, Black Panther For and Wakanda sure. Forever. So <laughs> you just you don't you don't gotta you don't gotta get into like your full on. I 
reviews yeah. on the movie if you don't want to, but could you at least share your experience with seeing Wakanda Forever in the in movie? The movie. <laughs> or it, the first one. <laughs> the first one? Yeah. 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 Black Panther is very global. Like, Black Panther is just, I think, um, it means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. I will for sure say that. Um, and I think that when it came out, it was a big deal. Like from like most, like pretty much every movie I would talk to, they're like, yo, have you seen Black Panther yet? You yeah. need, and actually another popular one was when, when the woman King came out. Oh yeah. That movie. Yeah. That came out when I was there. That came out when I was there. Yeah. And so yeah, like, I actually didn't see it. in oh, yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah, in the theater. The one yeah, I, know. I, know. I really should have seen it. Um, I know I didn't get to see it, but that was another movie where everyone like I'd be talking to people that I was working with at uh my internship, and they'd be like, "Have you seen Woman King yet?" And I'd be like, "No, I haven't yet." And they're like, "It was so good. You have to see it, Vera." And um, and so yeah, I think it's definitely it's another thing that's very complicated in terms of like just the multi layers that it has on surface. Black Panther, the first one, especially like. Is such a beautiful series and they really do they really do it well in terms of the budget they have like they treat it seriously and you can tell through the costumes right and like ruthie carter right you she's know, the one who did the costumes yo, yo like yeah. crazy yeah. costumes and just the detail yeah. of the film is just so beautiful where like, that really needed to happen on screen and yeah. needed to be seen by people yeah and on the other hand though like i think it brings up a lot of critiques and i think i think of it a lot in connection with the beyonce visual album for black is king mm. where i remember hearing like quite a few critiques of like you know is this real african culture or is this just beyonce as an african-american performing it and i told you i told you that conversation i had with someone uh who was in namibia and she's from there and has lived there her whole life and it was like two days before I was going to leave. And it was the first time that I'd had a conversation with a Namibian about what they thought about black Americans, mm. even though I like I kept hearing about it from and I was traveling with all white Americans. And so I would hear about it from them where they're like, I have people asking me, what are African-Americans like? And I'm like, no one's asked me that. <laughs> like, I'm not. I haven't had no, no one. Yeah, people, people would ask like the white kids. Yes, people would ask like the white Americans in my group. What are what are black people? Yeah, like, like, like tell me what are black people really like there? Yeah. And then I had never had any conversation. It was two days before that I finally talked with like what? a Namibian woman about her opinion. And she said that she felt that when black people, when African-Americans come to Africa, they want to tell like they want to tell people there like what they need or like oh you're being oppressed and this is how to limit but she was like but I actually don't see myself as oppressed and I've never seen myself that way but you're projecting that onto me because you haven't lived my life and she was also saying how so often she feels that African Americans try to perform being African or when they arrive there it's like a performance mm -hmm. of Africanism I think is how she put it and that really got me thinking. And that makes me think about with Black Panther, where you have Tabak Bozeman like does a hell of a job in his role. Yeah. But he's not 
African. Yeah. And yeah. Angela Bassett does an amazing oh. job in her oh. role. She's incredible, but she's not an African actor. Mm -hmm. And right. so, like, I think in terms of like, they all had to learn accents. They had to learn the accents. Yeah, exactly. And same with Viola Davis for Woman King. And these are incredible, incredible actors. And I don't want, I'm not in any way, shape, or form wanting to critique their skills or the work they put the in. The work that they put in or the fact that they also deserve to be there. But I think that this comes back to what I was saying of the relationship between African-American students and African students at Oberlin, where like, these are the conversations I want to be having with African actors and with African-American actors in terms of like, okay, like forget white people for a second, forget the Martin Freemans of the movie. Like, what are we going to like, how do we want to approach this? And like, how do we want to make this the most authentic film it can be? And yeah, I just, I think that that's something again, about like collaboration that I think that there's so much in media that tells us that we can't bridge the difference between us or like we'll never be we'll never be like each other and so we can't agree on anything or we can't decide things together but I feel like there's so much more strength in connecting over those differences mm -hmm. and it would be a very powerful connection if there was a genuine and intentional link between people on the continent and then people in the diaspora people in the diaspora yeah. and it's kind of what you're saying too about organizing around dreams and desires yeah exactly rather than yeah. what you you know what you hate about the world yeah and yeah and it's funny because it actually kind of connects i know it's a different like group but it kind of connects to my opinion of wakanda forever the sequel because Obviously, the people of Talokan would have been a much better ally, and yet they turned them into the villain. And I was like, no, this is not how this was supposed to go. The United States is the obvious villain of this film. I know. And then I was like, okay, really? Like, the United States and France are the ones trying to take the vibranium, like, trying to take the resources and extract it, just like in the real world. And then you have, like, the two, like... POC groups in the movie like fighting over it right and I was like okay like this is all orchestrated by Marvel right and if he's like 300 years old he would be really wise if he has wise exactly but if he hasn't gone to the war with the surface world in that amount of time and mm -hmm. then now he does it makes him seem like unintelligent like that like it was it was kind of reckless. Yeah. It was like, it was, he was trying to like, like kill Riri. It's like yeah. you don't have to. But like <laughs> just like, don't. Yeah, it's, yeah. like it's not necessary. They make them seem like a dumb villain. I mean, they but yeah. they but they never lost. You know. Yeah, that was that was, that was cool at the end. Say one of the that was cool at the end. Yeah, and it seemed like they were gonna create an allyship. I just think that could have happened like an hour and a half earlier, and then like could have avoided. Yeah. All those people worse. falling off the ship and like oh, getting stabbed, cold. like exactly. it was so sad. That seemed so. That seemed like, so sad. Like yeah. the whole last half of the movie was just like, was just Wakandans and then the Talokan people fighting each other. And I was like, okay, look at how this looks. Like, just like, the representation of this. And I read a really good critique on Twitter of how like they also treated the the language of the Talokan people in the film as being like this like dead language. But it's actually like something that's still spoken, and you can like oh, that's yeah. I'm pretty it sure it wasn't Spanish. 
No, it's not Spanish. It's what like is- an it's like an indigenous uh I'm trying to think if it's mine or Aztec. Right, 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 right. But yes, it's one wow. of the indigenous yeah. languages of, of Mexico, yeah. like uh at the time of colonialism, and it's actually like spoken by many people still, mm-hmm. but like it's treated in the film, it makes it seem like it's this dead language that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and that was another thing that I could feel just of watching the movie where I was like, okay, why, why are they treating it this way? Why are they treating Palo Khan in this way? Um, similar to just like how a lot, and now that Marvel's owned by Disney, just the way that they'll kind of just create cultures into a very like vague version of, of what it is. Where it's not really focusing on the details of that culture. Yeah. Yeah. Even though Pelican is fictional, fictional, um, but the language is not. Mm-hmm. The, from, I mean, from the what I understand. backstory, the essence, yeah. right? The like backstory the, was, the, yeah, that was the, some real stuff. The literal people. Yeah. Story, you know, like, yeah, there's so much. That so was much, intense. He said Cortez. Yeah, he said, like, remember, oh, he's like yeah. talking about the backstory. No, that priest. Like, when Cortez came, and I was like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's real. Um, yeah, I had a couple more things. That I to yeah. Um, so, you know, you you brought up poetry is not a luxury. Yeah. From Audre Lorde, uh, Eve Ewing actually has that tattoo. That tattoo of poetry tattoo. is not a luxury. It's one of the coldest tattoos. So cool. And uh, you've also maybe this is like news. I don't want to break this on air or anything but you also are thinking about getting a, a tattoo of the bell hooks <laughs> with the butterflies yeah um and i think that was the most excited i've ever felt about a tattoo yeah, honestly uh, i was really hyped and i just wanted to raise uh bell hooks as someone who mm-hmm. we all very much like care about and are constantly learning from but i just wanted to get your take on your relationship with her wow Mm. Mm. yeah i mean she passed away about what they they, almost a year ago yeah Yeah. it's it's i think it was the 15th it was yeah um so yeah it was about 14 days from from now would be Mm -hmm. a year um and yeah she really she really was, she just meant everything to me in terms of like, and, and we haven't touched on this yet, but I I really view myself as someone who wants to um, work in education mm-hmm. and wants to become an educator and seeing the way that she never had to compromise teaching and publishing or writing and was just constant and saw them as one and the same where it just really felt like she embodied that and embodied breaking boundaries between aspects of our lives mm-hmm. um, or compartmentalizing like, oh, I'm a writer now. Oh, I'm a teacher now. Oh, I'm a public speaker now. And was like, no, these are all me and wrote from that place, especially from how you can read and hear her critique and her writing is just so clear and really really accessible and it's really intent she writes it intentionally that way and accessibility is one of the most important things to me 
mm-hmm. in terms of like why why am I writing something if people can't understand it or like if people can't read it and it's a big reason why um oral history is a central part of my research project and knowing that like not everything that has value like has to be written down and the way that like speaking is oftentimes more accessible for people mm. and you know think of people like like pop like our mm. our, our grandfather mm-hmm. on our dad's side where he did not know how to read mm-hmm. but like he would be able to understand me when i read aloud my birthday cards that i wrote for him mm. like he knew what i was saying even if he couldn't read it mm. and so accessibility is really really important to me and bell hooks since she was a writer like also seemed to take that seriously and so once i read i'm trying to think the first thing i read by her it was probably ain't i a woman mm-hmm. and after that i was just like i just wanted to read everything that she had written and i'm i'm have still no i have yeah, not I i'm still yeah i'm still going down that list no <laughs> uh, i like starting with her essays though yeah. essays are another accessible thing for me to read where mm-hmm. i don't feel over as overwhelmed mm-hmm. um like i mentioned earlier with like sometimes reading feeling intimidating or overwhelming mm-hmm. um and so essays and her essays specifically are a really nice place for me to start um and were really inspiring for me to think about again like world building and thinking about mm-hmm. the world that i want to see and i want to live in and that i want my kids to live in that i want us to live in and not just accepting reality for what it is now. And so she's someone who just really motivated me to not be afraid to think critically and to like own that part of myself and and not shy away from it. Yeah, that's really real. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and you're right about her clarity. Like, it's funny because I had read a lot of her work before I ever heard her actually speak mm. and, and and like hearing her speak for the first time is so funny. Cause she's got that, she got that energy yeah. and like, she literally sounds exactly like how you would think she would sound off of her writing. Like it's the exact same, it's the exact same like tone and energy and like voice, you know? And so uh, yeah. I, I feel really blessed to just like, you know, cause it was, um, it was watching documentaries like Margolin Briggs one, uh, black mm-hmm. is black gate. Um, you know, uh, DJ Lene has like a great like bell hook set. Um, seeing some of her YouTube videos and lectures and stuff, like, because now whenever I read her, I just always hear her hear voice. Her. You know, <laughs> and yeah. her energy is just uh, infectious. I want to add in too. I think I think that's some of the best writers, and because the other person yeah. who does that is James Baldwin. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. James Baldwin's interviews. Exactly. He sounds exactly like the way he writes. He writes. Yeah. And. I think I, you know, it's, I think it's also, it's high key a black thing. I think just because mm-hmm. of what I was saying too, of the way that it's developed, it's yeah. very based around the oral tradition yeah. and how a word sounds and how the sentence sounds and especially just for how to like teach English to someone. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, I think it's definitely something there of like connection to language and not taking it for granted where like, it's very connected to like I'm gonna write the way I talk, yeah, and I'm gonna talk the way I write, mm-hmm. and how those are connected. Yeah, no, no, you're you're definitely right. You're right. Um, 
uh, oh, I also want, else. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, too, yeah. of, like, I think that they're, I just want to say, too, like, yeah. to finish the thought of, I think that they're connected because with the poetry is not a luxury thing, right? right? Going back to that of how the original poets are often coined as, like, the Romantic era where they're very yeah. pompous, very elegant, very yeah. elevated, entitled kind of vocabulary that's comes off as inaccessible. Right. And I think that what? <laughs> oh, you just didn't say white in that, but like no, oh like, yes. Like every single the word white, that you said, the white way of white, writing. White, 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 white. The white way of writing. Um, English. You know, that there's definitely a stereotype, but there's some interesting stuff there. But yeah, I, yeah. No, but just of like the the way of commodifying your words yeah. rather than meaning what you say. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a very black thing to be like. No, this is what I. This is how I see this. This is yeah. how I feel about this. Yeah, I'm not sure. going to sugarcoat it or dance around what I'm trying to say, <laughs> yeah. and like, or make right. it sound pretty. Right. And it's so very like grounded and and raw and real. And I think that Bell Hooks and James Baldwin connect in that way. Mm-hmm. And and Toni Morrison also very much oh, so in her sure. interviews. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Another thing I wanted to loop back to, one of the first things you said was just how you felt like you were a slow reader. And um, that actually puts you in the best company because Jacqueline Woodson, another former guest of ours, um, uh, is probably the slowest reader on earth, (laughs) right? And she talks about the importance of reading slowly. Um, And one of her her books, her her memoir, written in poetry form, Brown Girl Dreaming. Yeah. is you know a, a, a crucial book for all of us, but you first in a way. And I remember when when we found it at the um, yeah. at the Little Free Library, yeah, walking around library. Dayton. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask along what you were just saying from your last answer, like what are you dreaming about right now specifically? Wow. Wow. <sighs> what am I dreaming about? Wow, that's a really good question, yo. I feel like in my head, I'm thinking of all of the most basic things that yeah, people need, yeah. clean water, and yeah. fresh food. Um, but I want to think, I'm trying to think deeper than those things. Those are super deep. They are deep. Yeah. They are deep. Of, of feminist, you know what I'm <laughs> I mean, that's true. That's true. You're I mean, the other, the other day we got... You're like, we got eight years, bro. All right, what? Yeah, we're in the car. I know. Oh, off of the, off of the report. Off of the report. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Yes. yes we're yeah. Well, yeah. Twenty fifteen, probably. Oh, but then there was also like the more recent one that came out. Yeah, yeah. which was like even more like. Climate. Get it to yeah. Exactly. Get it to. I mean, it's actually it's kind of it is definitely connected to the climate crisis. Um. And I think something I'm dreaming about that is more of a more recent thing for me, at least like within the last few years where, you know, my my discipline, I'm a Africana studies major. And so, um, and I think that through high school and, you know, from things that our dad would talk about with like historically where he's very centered around the African-American experience in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and very focused around Black people. And so thinking back to like my upbringing, I've really had to reflect on what I envision for the future 
And I do believe in like black communities being led by black people within that space. But I also have been really reflecting and wanting to dream beyond and look towards solidarity between black people in the United States and indigenous people and native Americans. And also connecting to what I said of connecting with people on the continent and with the greater diaspora globally, Mm -hmm. like it sounds so hard to achieve, but that really is what I'm dreaming of, of a genuine and grounded and reciprocal relationship between oppressed groups globally, high key. And like, I, I really envision that. And I don't want to see any more tension between Black people and Indigenous people of who who gets this, who gets this, and fighting over things like that, that I feel like is very present. Where if we were to ask our dad about, like, how do you feel about, like, the like land back? How do you feel about land back? Mm-hmm. And I really don't think he'd be able to process it because he's so focused on the history of enslavement mm-hmm. and the wrongdoing of that, where he's like, oh, no, I need to get mine first. And it's actually like, we need to go deeper than that. And we need to think about how all of us are connected in this. And it's not who, a non-zero sum. It's, yeah, it's not a zero sum. Yeah. And, and that, like, that's really something I've been dreaming about that I, I find it hard to articulate at times because it can be difficult to be a true and genuine ally to people who aren't from your community or who aren't from your racial background Mm -hmm. but like i really do mean it genuinely of that's what i dream of most and additionally to that um it's really connected to responding to the climate crisis where a lot of the people who bear the most danger to climate catastrophe and environmental issues are black and brown people globally Mm -hmm. and so the moment that we're able to work together and see their fight is our fight and our fight is their fight, like I think is when when the political institutions that decide a lot of the climate response, like is when they that won't matter anymore because people are understanding like that community is more important than all of that. And like that combining our efforts and abilities is much more valuable. And I wanted to say also that I think it's connected to, um, there's this quote that I really love and that has guided me for a long time. And it's by LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, who is a Dakota elder who worked a lot on the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline protests. Mm -hmm. And um, she said that the abuse of women is well known in history and tells you a lot about what is happening to our earth. And I see a strong connection between violence against women and trans people globally with violence against the earth and disregard for the environment. And we don't realize the way that we're connected to the environment and connected to people globally who are more in touch with their gender expressions. And it's so often villainized and so often targeted. 
for especially like trans and non-binary people who are incredibly in touch with who they are that it threatens others mm-hmm. and they end up treating treating us like those like treating us like the earth in the way that like creating landfills or like just throwing stuff into the water yeah wastelanding wastelanding exploding extracting yeah like yeah. it's so connected to me where like it's a disregard for life that i really dream of like healing the earth by like healing our relationship to the most marginalized which i feel are definitely like women trans people and non-binary people globally in terms of like gender specifically Mm -hmm. and then to be any of those groups and also be a person of color is also very deeply connected to what it means for like healing the environment and responding to the climate crisis right now in my opinion Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm dreaming of mm-hmm. in a long-winded way. <laughs> and and what has been bringing you joy? Mm. What has been bringing me joy? Yeah. In, in any way. What has been bringing me joy? That's a really good question. I get that a lot. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I mean... My instinctual answer is definitely dogs. <laughs> Foster, Foster, our dog Foster, and Jan's dog Bo, like building those interspecies. They really, they really bring me joy. Interspecies bonds. Interspecies bonds. <laughs> I know it's just, it's a, it's a symbiocene. Like we see ourselves as separate from other living beings through intelligence or yeah innovation but right. i think that's also part of the the returning to that i'm interested in right for sure and talk, about, I, talk about talk about meeting needs right like i feel meeting like needs. you know raising Bo taught me so much about communicating oh, so needs and needs. oh you're gonna bring them <laughs> <laughs> no but yeah like dogs <laughs> really good at like communicating what they need yeah but essentially i was gonna say like because like when i when i got really homesick like i was just so excited to see foster and like Especially, like, since we, like, have never had a dog. Yeah. And so, like, <laughs> I think it's definitely something where it's, like, even more joyful having one. Mm-hmm. And, like, even in our family, like, like nobody argues anymore. <laughs> like, I swear. I swear. Wait, that's not I swear. <laughs> holiday gatherings used to be, like. But, yeah, now everyone's, like, from <laughs> <Or> Foster. <laughs> or he's, like, right there. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, you get someone to, someone to pay attention to. Like Foster yeah. was a true character, and then it kind of like takes it away from having to point attention to other people. I think so. I really think that dogs can really like um, diffuse situations. Yeah, for sure. But like, yeah, they're just like really calming, and like, there's a reason that like they're really emotionally supportive. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of other things bringing me joy. I mean, that's a great. That's a great I know, right? It's a good, good answer. Um, <laughs> hmm. What is bringing me joy? Wow. It's funny because I've felt much more at peace recently. Yeah. And I think it was because of my trip abroad. But it's hard to pinpoint one thing specifically that's making mm-hmm. me feel more open to joy. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you d- define joy? Hmm. Hmm. 
don't know. In a lot of ways, I kind of think of it as like defiance or being really defiant to the, the, the present circumstances or because mm-hmm. I think it can be expressed in different ways. And I know it doesn't mean just happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also means peace. So it's kind of like a defiant peace. Joy. Poetry. Defiant peace. No joy, man. No <laughs> wow. Grace, uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Blockbuster episode. Uh, seriously. <laughs> seriously. You are uh, wonderful and beautiful. And obviously, we've been talking whole lives we will continue to do so but we feel really truly blessed to be your brothers and to know you in any capacity but especially Hmm. especially being you know the big bros big bros uh we love you so much and big bros that's right 21 that's right (laughs) grown now you know uh but yeah no um just th- thank you so much for for being on the podcast with us. Hope you enjoyed yourself. If uh, you had any like last words or mm. recommendations for you know movies, you know you mentioned uh, mm-hmm. Lady Portrait of a wait, Portrait wait, of a Lady on yeah fire. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, that could be the title of this episode, low key, because you're <laughs> definitely on fire. Oh, or it fun. could be like in water, you know, in flying, water. whatever you want. Uh, portrait of an artist, anything. But yeah, any any. Uh, last words or recommendations for movies books music anything that's on your mm-hmm. right now a last monologue the last monologue <laughs> no nah, i'm out of monologues i'm out of monologues <laughs> i'm not used to being interviewed <laughs> i'm not used to being the interviewer um i'm just trying to think hmm. Hmm. there's a poet i recently really liked i really want to shout out um oh I really want to shout out Denez Smith. Oh uh, yeah. Their poetry. There um yep. they're from Columbus too, right? Maybe Ohio. No, wait. Mm, I want to say Chicago. So I'm looking at it. Yeah, I just I just gave their book to uh, a friend of mine, homie. homie. I've actually given that book to a couple yeah. people at this point now. Their writing is just like on another level. Oh, Minnesota. Minnesota, thank yeah. you. Because no, I saw I was I followed them on Twitter mm-hmm. and their Twitter is so fun. Follow them on Twitter, they're really really fun. But like okay. uh they posted like this poem that was just like it was probably like only like seven lines, seven or eight lines, and like just totally took my breath away. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this is what writing is supposed to feel like. Oh. Or like what reading is supposed to feel like. And that's my favorite thing about poetry, where it's just like you're just so on the edge of what life could be, where it's just you're describing and and putting into words like what you thought you couldn't. And it's just like each line is an opportunity to like totally take someone's breath away in a way that like prose can sometimes not be as intentional with each sentence. Mm-hmm. Um where there is like filler sentences to like give plot and you need that for a novel or for a short story but in poetry like it's just like every line can be like a different world and it's just so cool to me but like that poem specifically um they were writing about minnesota i'm trying to remember the title that's um yeah the first time i went on to uh their twitter uh the first thing up was 
like the scenes from Pieces of Me, the Toni Morrison documentary. Oh. And it was specifically the the scene where she was like, "Oh yeah, I had fun." I, yeah. I, was, like, I was like, "This is hilarious." Yeah, I got like, a whole rabbit yeah. hole. Like, I found like, I found a whole um, like ev- like everywhere I went on my feed, it oh, would yeah. be like coming up with like that specific clip yeah, of piece exactly. of me and all the like famous black writers yeah. and scholars and poets were like, fun, but you know, it's cool." <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. That's so true. I was just going to tour it too. But yeah, Dana Den- Smith is a really, yeah. really beautiful writer. And mm-hmm. I really admire their writing mm-hmm. and work. And they've inspired me a lot with like gender expression as well mm-hmm. and made me feel more comfortable. And and then for them to be a poet too, it's just like awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, if you think of any other uh, recommendations, I would like to take this time to say I was right. <laughs> as soon as you get in your bag, Grace, it's very oh, deep. Yeah. 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 I, I I will say Grace was saying, oh uh, yeah, like I don't know. I just can only do 20, 30, 30 minutes max. I'm like, not trying to do work. <laughs> and yeah, I didn't say that. to say I proved the both of y'all I mean, just to say I'm right again, I think it was two years ago during COVID, we were talking in our place in Having Aiden, a conversation just like this. Just I like remember, this. I remember. It was longer. And it was more argue, argumentative. I yeah, think that was our yeah, vibe yeah. back in the, the day. There, yeah. Yeah. Dogs. <laughs> and I just, and I pushed uh, Mike into the middle of the table, <laughs> like, Probably oh, three hours in, guys oh, were like, oh. and Grace both just shut down. You know, yeah, stop talking. We're like, like, what, what are you doing? Yeah, I was like, I was like, guys, think this is a great combo. We could have a podcast. When, when, that, that was great. You guys are like, oh, fuck this. I'm like, we're just like, I'm tired, though. <laughs> That's You're true. Like, we can't just talk for eight hours. Yeah, but just had to be. The annoying yeah, you have to get a little, have to get a little be right. But yeah, this was uh, really my favorite episode ever. Yeah, yeah seriously, this was, this you're was honestly so crazy, Grace. Thank you so much, y'all. Like, yeah. I, I really was hesitant to do this. Mm. Um, <laughs> and y'all were setting it up at the beginning, and I was like, yeah. oh, here we go. I was like, you got the sweatshirts. Yeah, like, ah. awesome. <laughs> but, but yeah, thank you. Comfort build. Yeah, I'd thank like, you. It doesn't take long. It's yeah. not like jumping into some water, you know. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Sometimes I tend to to pull back from something before I even like tried it or like assume that I it'll be too much for me to do. Um and that's something I learned a lot in Namibia as well mm-hmm. at the internship I was working at where you know, sometimes they would ask me to lead something, lead a group discussion or a community forum. And I'd be like, oh, my head, I'm like, I, I can't do that. But they'd be like, no, it'll be fine. And then I would do it and and then it would be okay afterwards. Yeah. And yeah, I got I got a lot more comfortable with just like jumping into something. Yeah. So thank you. This made me really, really happy. Yeah, this podcast episode <laughs> brought me joy. <laughs> it really did, though. This really did bring me joy. 
Thank you. Thank you, bros. Thank you, Grace. Thank you. Group up. There we go. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and feedback on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And uh, thank you for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.